0: Welcome to season seven of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green, and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. It's wonderful to know that there are teachers across the globe that are finding our episodes useful. So please take the time to subscribe, share the episodes and leave some feedback. Before we get started, I would like to acknowledge the Darawal speaking people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording. I pay respects to the elders past and present of the Darawal nation and extend that respect to other Aboriginal people that are listening to this. I hope that you get as much out of our discussion as I did. Please enjoy. Today, it's my great pleasure to share this conversation that I recently had with Dr. Nick Jackson. Nick is an educator and former school leader who has a passion for the ways in which technology is used in classrooms. In particular, his PhD focus was on the ways in which students can train teachers to better use technology. We talked about how to create authentic learning communities, schools as circular economies and how we could micro-credential students. I hope that you get as much out of this conversation as I did. Please enjoy. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having a chat to me. Where are you phoning in from?
1: Oh, at the moment, I'm in a hotel room in Melbourne. I'm just here to celebrate my um, graduation from my recently acquired PhD. Normally, I reside in in Adelaide, um, and as you can probably hear, I'm not from either of those places. I'm actually from Yorkshire in England, but I've been here 10 years. And um, yeah, so here I am on the, a day of celebration.
0: Nice one. Well, congratulations. A wonderful, uh, wonderful achievement. Um, I must admit, I love a good Yorkshire tea, good, strong... <laughs> None of this old Grey stuff. Uh, it's uh, do you miss Yorkshire tea?
1: Oh no, we get it. We get plenty of Yorkshire tea. We if we if we run out over here, we get it. People to bring it over to us, or send it over to us because you can't live without it. Although I did, I do remember back going back to university and and actually having the, the the seed planted in my mind for the first time when I met when one of the lads I went to live with um, as a, as a student in a shared house. A lad from Brighton turned around to me and said. One of the first times I said, "Well, you can't, you can't buy anything else but Yorkshire tea," and they went, "Yorkshire tea? Where's that ground on the moors? You know, it's not exactly like ground in that. Yorkshire, is it? So, you know, like why it's Yorkshire tea, I have no idea. But you're right, it's yeah. about the strength, isn't it?
0: When it comes, but don't out. can't you just use two or three tea bags,
1: or is it different? No, it's not the same. It's stew, wouldn't it? You should know that.
0: Uh, look, <laughs> I, 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 this is just for those that are not familiar with tea brewing, but, uh, but yeah, look. Um, So we've, we've, it's a drink of choice, Yorkshire tea uh, or is it coffee or something else?
1: I'm a bit of a flitter and a changer. So sometimes it'll be Yorkshire tea. Sometimes it'll be um, a good long, uh, long black. And then I've just got it recently got into mushroom coffee. Yeah. Super mushroom coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It does um, have the same sort of perk you up effects as coffee, but it doesn't have like the, the sort of, um, you know, pick you up and drop you off which coffee tends to do when it when it wears off
0: fantastic uh just to let you know obviously we're both uh, alumni of the university of melbourne uh, one of my favorite coffee shops is seven seeds so it should just be uh close uh that's right next to the education building so if you're there it's uh worth a worth a visit um is there an item that's still on your bucket list something that you you still want to you still want to get done education wise or just generally in life could be how about we go with an education one and then we go with a personal one as well um i think i think i still want to um publish more
1: i still want to have things recognized as being um something that people can go oh that's his model or that's his theory or Mm. you know i'm following that course of action i think anybody who, um, who who does some research work always wants that research to be recognized. So I think, you know, I think that bit of recognition for for what you've done and feel like it's actually making an impact in, in educators' lives. So definitely yeah. on the, in the education landscape, there's definitely that that I feel that I want to do. Fantastic. And personally? Personally, oh, it's always regarding travel for me. Yeah. Um, travel is has always been my thing and um, so there's so much of the world I still haven't seen uh, especially South America still mm-hmm. want to spend some time in Argentina Brazil uh Mr. Pichu uh yeah still want to dive in some places I've never dived so yeah there's always
0: travel to do can I just say from experience Machu Picchu was brilliant absolutely brilliant and my wife and I Pre-kids, we took a, I think it was about a five-day hike. Uh, It was phenomenal. Um, We did get the cheap tickets and went during the raining season, so uh, probably avoid that. So I think we were probably damp for five days, Uh, but it was absolutely uh, life-changing. So highly recommend that. And if you want to plan a trip, I can uh, let you know a really good tour guide that does that for you. Awesome. Nice. And if you could have, uh, just curious, Nick, if you could have a dinner party with anybody uh, who would be there, I mean, your family doesn't count at the uh, dinner table Uh, in terms of seats, but uh, who would you like to be invited?
1: Well, my wife would have to come because she's generally the life and soul of the party and she'd probably get too drunk, so she has to be there anyway. Uh, But I think Robin Williams would be a really good guest to have because when it comes down to it, it's a dinner party and you want some life in it, don't you? And Robin Williams would be an excellent guest. Uh, And then I'd have the Dalai Lama. Definitely the Dalai Lama. Um, Muhammad Ali, I think in his prime, that would be... And it's about the mix of people as well, you see. And I think those people together. Um, Morgan Freeman, I definitely have, just because you could listen to him all night, you know, with with that gravel voice. Um, Michelle Obama, I think that would be an interesting guest to put with those people as well. And I think, lastly, I think I'd have Blondie, just so she could tell some stories back from the punk days Back in New York in the, in those days as well, and I think in that mix of people that would be a, quite an interesting dinner party.
0: Interesting. Well, I uh, I'd love an invite if you can organise that. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll I'll hit you up for the invite. Um, just interesting. Uh, just interested as well. Um, what do you think those that are closest to you would say about you?
1: Um, I think they would definitely say that I was passionate, hard worker, um, uh, straight down the line, kind of honest and frank. I'm going to tell people what I think, uh, but also, you know, uh, a good listener, um, mm-hmm. somebody who's concerned with um, how other people are responding to the way I act and the things that I do. But, yeah, uh, that general mix of, you know, wanting to get things done but also wanting to make sure that everybody around me is um, coming along with me. Fantastic. I've always been – I've definitely been labelled as a team player and that's that's something that I, you know, I I really champion that idea of bringing people along with me or or being part of a team I think is really important to me as well.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And for those people um that that aren't aware um what's your journey been like to where you are now? I mean you you obviously said that you uh, uh in Melbourne to celebrate your PhD graduation, but how did you kind of get here? What was your experience like in education? Were there any teachers that made a difference in your life? Um yeah, how did you Get to where you are. Depends how far you want to go back, but I suppose uh, if we,
1: if <laughs> we've, we start got, up, we've, we've got an back. hour, so. Uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was, well, let's go back to school. I was not the best student at school at all. I was very much uh, the bare minimum kind of guy, uh, constantly annoying my father who knew that I could do much more. It was always that report at school of could do much better. You know, I generally like to um, act the fool at school. As I say, get away with minimum sort of grades, um, but uh, in in the in the English system school system, I stayed on for what's called sixth form, which you do mm-hmm. your A levels in. So I did them, but I got really bad grades. I got a D and two E's because I spent all my time going to football and going and watching bands uh, all around the country. Um, nice, and yeah, it was a good time. And then um, I um, I decided I wasn't going to university straight away, so I went into the world of work. But uh, that only lasted a year because I saw people around me going off to university and having too much of a good time. So I thought, well, I want a piece of that. So I quit work and went to university. Uh, I managed to uh, scrape my way into the, any course that could have me with a D A's. and two E's. And yeah, I got into what was called a combined studies degree, which was law and computing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who knows why? Anyway. Did you I- have an interest in any of those?
1: Yeah, I, did. I think I had an interest in law because I used to watch a lot of American sort of crime <laughs> series. So, you know, yeah. Cagney and Lacey had a lot of uh, a lot to answer for, as well as Hill Street Blues and things like that. Yeah. So so I had an interest in that. And I'd always had an interest in technology of some kind, uh, whether it be playing Manic Miner on a spectrum or, you know, like getting computers to do certain things at a very basic level. Um, so those two things I chose. Yeah. I don't know why, but I did. So I went off to university again. I wasn't a very good student at all. I had too much of a good time. Um, and um, I used to DJ a lot when I was there. Uh, so that took up a lot of my time. Also going to gigs, football and various other things. And anyway, I came out of university with um, a pretty low standard degree. I didn't even get honours. I only got a past degree. So you could say that if we if we look back and reflect on this, I probably wasn't mature enough for mm-hmm. study I was some would argue probably a typical male I really wasn't mature, mature enough to deal with the study or to know where I was going um but yeah I was doing the bare minimum and getting by came out of uni and didn't know what to do um dj for a couple of years um lived with my friends from uni who all had decent jobs and careers and I didn't have that really and then then things happened in in the music uh as regards the music and I decided I wanted out of that So I opted to go to America to do uh, Camp America, which I'd done before, but I worked to believe it or not, washing pots I'd done first time around when I was a student. But this time I I thought to myself, no, I'm going to go and I'm going to actually be a camp counsellor, you know, work with kids. So I need some experience. So I started doing youth work, uh, working in youth clubs, working on the streets with with, uh, kids in my hometown of Leeds. Um, did that various part time gigs doing, um, you know, youth work, as I say, sometimes on the streets, sometimes in clubs, and found that I actually, you know, worked really well with young people, could relate to them really well, um, and went off to do Camp America as a camp counselor. Got a job um, in, in for the summer, um, or the summer in, in the States anyway, or in that was in, um, in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was out in Pennsylvania uh, on a camp there looking after the oldest boys on the, the, and this was a day camp this was, so they would, they did, they came for like a week and then went home for the weekend, that's what, and some of them just came for the day. So that was uh, an interesting experience. Um, Basically, you know, my job was to look after this whole group of interesting characters. Uh, And yeah. Spent the whole summer doing that and then toured around America and, uh, yeah, ended up staying there. And uh, that was quite interesting. Uh, met up with somebody and, uh, yeah, ended up staying there, ended up living there for about 18 months. Um, and, yeah, um, worked in bars, worked in a diner and wow. worked in a special needs school as well. So wow. still had that thing of working with young people. It was a principle that of a special needs school who used to come in the bar that I worked in and said, Oh, come and work for me. So I did. So I did a few days a week in the special needs school, and it wasn't special needs. Uh, Well, it was learning difficulties, but these were kids from most of the kids were from the streets of DC uh, who had been in gangs and had all sorts of, you know, social, emotional troubles. And yeah, that was quite interesting work as well. Um, Again, I found That's that nice. I, could, yeah, I, found I could relate to yeah. young people again. So while I was there in the States, so I, got to, I was getting to that point where I think you get to a stage, most people get to a stage in life where you go, I really need to have a career and do something. So I did. I thought, here we go. I'm going to actually do something. Let's career here. So I, did, I decided to be, become a teacher. So I started inquiring about becoming a teacher looked at it in the states found that it was yeah i can't remember why but there was things that put me off doing it in the states so i decided to look at it in the uk and come back to the uk and i came back to the uk i applied and got on a course in the uk um, to do uh, teacher training i managed even with a poor standard degree i managed to convince people that um, i should only do a one-year teacher training course because in the uk the way it works is if you're doing it in your own subject, you only do you only do a one-year course. If you're doing it in another subject, you do a two-year yeah. course. Yeah. So I got on a one-year course, and I suppose this was the light bulb moment. Uh, I was, you know, one one of the best students they had on the course. So at last I actually knuckled down and studied and worked wow. hard. Yeah. And I found I found that this was what I wanted to do. I did my placements in schools, got offered two placements I did they both offered me jobs I took one of them and that was it and I was only a teacher for one term I think and then I became assistant head of department after after one term yeah my first year of teaching and yeah and then then became head of department the year afterwards and I've always been in leadership since then
0: so I mean there's, there's so much Nick there's so much in that like I mean and just let me try and unpack that incredible, incredible and diverse journey. Like, do you think that the your experience at school, and as you said, you were sort of pretty disengaged and sort of sorry, mm. experience, do you think that has impacted how you were how you approached teaching and your ability to relate to sort of disengaged kids? Or how do you think that's impacted your, I guess, your educational philosophy?
1: Yeah, I do think it makes me able to look at things a little bit differently it makes me able to focus on the need to uh, light sparks in kids and the need to focus on what kids are passionate about and try and find that thing with kids it also has enabled me as you just uh, referred to then enabled me to talk to kids who on that level and go look I know this isn't your thing and I know you're going to struggle with school and I understand that and I was like you as well you know so it does enable me to see that side of things does it make me more able to work with disengaged kids at certain times in my career it depends um i've found that at different parts of my career I've, I've been excited by different parts of teaching and working with different types of kids so i've worked in really challenging schools but i've also worked in you know academic schools yeah uh, so yeah. it depends on the time of, you know, the
0: moments in my career. Really. Interesting. And do you think like, look, I've I've heard the quote that things don't make sense looking forward in life. It's really difficult to connect the dots looking forward, but looking back, things kind, kind of come into alignment. Do you feel like that with you? Like looking back, do you go, Oh, there was a, um, th- there seems to be a sort of a common thread here. Like, did you have a plan when you were at you're university studying law and technology, or exactly.
1: like, yeah. like I, I'd say people who I meet who knew me when I was in younger age go. You a teacher, really? There was no plan. There was no yeah, plan at all. Yeah. And um, and I think you're right. I think reflection is one of the most powerful mm. tools that we have. The ability to be able to reflect and the ability to be able to figure things out. Yeah. I think you know. I think leading into that, a bit of an aside from that. I I nearly every day I try to do it every day I do an education thought of the day which I put on Twitter and I put on LinkedIn that's under the hashtag of ETOTD on on Twitter and um, that's just something that I think of after reflecting after a day at school now it may not be something that's happened in that day at school it may be something that that's been prompted by what somebody said yeah. It could be it could even be a re part of a retweet or something mm-hmm. I've read or it could be something from a few days ago that I've mulled over. But it does go into that 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 reflection thing.
0: Yeah. You know? Well we'll make sure that we I'll make sure I put all of that information in obviously the show notes so people can yeah. follow you and, and see the kind of what you're processing each day, which I think yeah, is it, really it goes important.
1: Off a, it goes off on all sorts of tangents and sometimes it it ha, it it prompts like that some really complex discussions other times it gets completely ignored and that doesn't really bother me because it's it's my reflection sometimes it's really deep sometimes it's very shallow it's just yeah. something that but, yeah it comes down to reflection and I, I do think that if we look at some of the the systems in the world that are championed as being the best education systems to me it must be a lot down to the fact that these systems the teachers have a lot of time to reflect yeah when we're, when we're looking at the finished system and all these kinds of things and we're saying oh they've got all this time there must be an awful lot
0: of time to reflect within that mm. system mm. just take me back nick what was that experience like working a term and then being asked to be an assistant head uh of a department i mean did would do you think there was something that they i mean well they, they must have seen something in you um to give you that promotion but what on earth I mean talk about imposter syndrome what on earth were you <laughs> feeling in that moment <laughs> or was, it good, or was it good that you didn't know what you were doing was that a positive thing like I don't know like it seems quite phenomenal
1: I think the reality is I did know what I was doing you know right. because I mean the thing is I was 30 years old i would got life experience yeah you know uh, there's one thing the second thing is this was Y2K So there was nobody in IT at all who wanted to be in teaching because they were all earning a fortune, (laughs) you know, all solving the Y2K bug, which never really existed, but there we go. Um, So to have somebody with the the qualifications who was going to do IT because IT was compulsory in the national curriculum in, in England at the time was just gold dust. And, yeah, I was virtually the only person who knew what they was doing um I was the only you know I was a person that that uh, obviously had a passion for it and was willing to work really hard because in I would say in in England or more than in Australia the expectations around hours especially in your first few years of teaching is just yeah it's insane I mean the pressure's big here but it's nothing compared to what it is in in England so I was willing to do that you know
0: yeah and we'll definitely touch on that Nick obviously like technology is now and so it should be very much at the forefront and the centre of education systems as a result of COVID and access to curriculum and so on and so forth there's so much in that and we I promise we'll move into that but I'm just curious about um, how you define leadership and also how you think that has changed over the years Um, what are some of the trends that you've noticed with that?
1: I think defining leadership, it always comes down to I I really think it's important for somebody to be very clear about what their mantra is, what their message is, you know, what they stand for and actually keep reinforcing that. I, I think that's really important. I also think it's important that uh, leadership is defined by somebody who does the little things, whether it's, you know, taking time to talk to people, whether it's you're out with the students, whatever it is. That, that you feel is important for you as a leader, It's the little things. And what comes yeah. into that is listening. Listening skills are huge. Now, you, I've met leaders who I know they're not listening when I'm talking to them, And that, yeah, that's, to wow. me, that's just not going to win. <laughs> that's not going to win me over at all. I need somebody who listens and can listen well, but who also is willing to stand, as I said, is willing to stand for yeah. what they believe in.
0: Yeah. And so sort of I promise I'm listening. I was just writing down a few things. That, uh, but just um, just wondering, Nick, how do, you, how do you build that skill in yourself? Like, have you always been a, a good listener? Is it something that you've had to, to work at? I mean, if you ask my wife, I think I'm a good listener. If you ask my wife, she may have a different point of view. Uh, uh, but uh, how do you, as a leader, how do you embody that yourself?
1: I think um, I think I did growth um, well it was called coaching doing the grow model in in the UK and once I got exposed to that we did a real fast paced two or three days of it when we brought it in as a as a replacement for parent teacher interviews in the school I was working for in the UK and when I got exposed to that I really had that chance to stand back and go hang on am I a good listener do I do enough listening do I shut up enough when people are talking Mm -hmm. and I think Again, it comes back to that reflection, doesn't it? If you've got time to reflect on what you are and what skills you bring and do you do enough of these sort of things or do you do too much of that, that gave me a chance to really look at the way I listen and how I listen and the power that's in not saying anything, especially when somebody's trying to sort out their own problems and that sort of counselling situation. So, yeah, that taught me a lot about myself. So I think that was kind of a light bulb moment. So that was that'll be 12 15 years ago now
0: so nick is there a um a leader that has really made a difference in your life in terms of someone that you've worked with uh someone that you've had the privilege of mentoring is there someone that 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 has really made a difference in your life in terms of a leadership from the leadership oh,
1: i think that Oh, that's a tough question because whoever I, whoever I mention, I'm going to leave people out. That's that, you know, Yeah, that's, okay, yeah, we'll, uh, you know. we'll be
0: diplomatic on that one and we'll move yeah. on maybe. Yeah. I,
1: think, I think what I'd say to that is that you take pieces from, from everybody you work yeah. with and, yeah. and not just people you work with. There's people in my network um, who have inspired me in different ways and continue to do that. Mm. Um, so it's yeah. not just leaders, it's the people around you and it's also students as well. So yeah, you take I take pieces from, from all sorts of different places, good and bad as well. You know, yeah. some of the things that, that I consider to be bad practice, I think, you yeah. know, teach me things as well.
0: Well, I think it's an interesting point that you raise because I know that I have learned so much from uh leaders that are quote unquote poor leaders. Um, you <laughs> learn what not to do. Uh and uh being in obviously a leader leadership position now, it really makes me Think about how I come across to others. Um, mm-hmm. Really, I think really important. And and Nick, I'm I'm definitely noticing a, a bit of a technology thread uh, in your story, whether it be from your undergraduate doing law and technology to uh, your role uh, during Y2K implementing technology as an assistant head, then a head. Um, but also your your PhD um, really looked explicitly at technology. What were some of your findings in your PhD and uh, Are there any, uh, what sort of question did you answer in that?
1: Well, the focus of my PhD was really about um, empowering students with technology, training them up, and then putting them in the role where they're training teachers, but not just training them with the technology, actually training them as regards professional learning, really, not training, in respective uh, pedagogical approaches with teaching with technology so the whole idea of how you integrate technology into your practice mm. so the question was regarding um how can uh, the student digital leaders uh, influence the knowledge and practice of teachers that they're working with when integrating technology so
0: it so was in that. wow yeah
1: there is so <laughs> much in that and yeah it the way that The way that PhD research uh, morphs and the way it goes off on tangents and and the way that the question shapes and all that kind of thing, you know, it it didn't start out with that question at all, but it always started out with the same theme, which was to do with this whole idea of young people being in positions where they can somehow influence teachers. And what does that look like? How does that work? What's going to happen? Wow. You know, so it was all in that area, which is of course is about power. Yeah. And it's about empowerment. And it's wow. about, you know, teachers' confidence and it's about teachers' skill levels, but it's also about context as well. Because wow. it depends on the school you work in. So there's so many factors. Yes.
0: Wow. And I think that's so interesting because uh I know definitely in my schooling that the the view was that it was a top-down approach in the classrooms where the teachers were the holders of these, this knowledge and it was about you sitting down, shutting up, sitting in rows and your brains being filled with everything that I know as the educator. Do you think that sort of that notion is changing and what are some of the uh, the ways that I, I guess technology is helping us to sort of flatten that hierarchy in the classroom?
1: I think definitely. I think I don't think this sort of question that I'm asking now would have would have been something in the minds of, of a lot of educators, you know, maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago. Although there are some educators looking back in history who've done this kind of thing. Uh, but there's no doubt at all that the there is more of a concern and more of, uh, let's say, it's not a trend. There is more interest in... empowerment of students in the acknowledgement that teachers are not the holders of knowledge in a classroom at all and we can challenge that idea especially when it comes down to technology and when we look at recent uh, events worldwide they've definitely had an impact on on our ability to be able to to teach differently, to educate differently, to see our roles more as facilitators, to trust students, to to actually do things that we're going to put in place and to understand that we don't have to sit kids in rows and dictate to them what's going to happen.
0: Yeah. So what do you think then some of the implications are for the way that we train teachers? Because it seems like a completely different landscape to when I was at school. I know, like, even when I was studying at university, which was 15 years ago, I think about some of those skills that we learned that are just not needed anymore so uh, I mean would you mind maybe sharing just for a few moments on what that means for how we train teachers now
1: yeah it's an area that I've, I've commented on a few times and um, I when I speak to pre-service teachers that um, I come into contact with either that either the ones I mentor or ones that I've met that are on courses <clears throat> I get the feeling that there's still a lot of work to be done in in a lot of those courses to change things to actually get uh, some notion of what is educational technology, how should it be used, the integration mm. of technology, what is contemporary teaching look like, even looking at different pedagogical models, you know, if we're looking at project-based learning versus direct instruction, do, I mean, how many pre-service teachers consider those, those big questions? You know, how many pre-service teachers understand what the difference between facilitating and teaching? You know, how do you guide young people through uh, building a portfolio, for instance? How do you get, the, how do you manage a classroom full of kids if they're all going to do different passion projects, mm. things like that? Is that something that happens in pre-service teaching? I'm not sure that it does. So, if we look at contemporary teaching and contemporary practice, and we're talking about changes that people argue should happen, uh, pre-service teachers coming through with those skills. Hmm. I would mm. question that sometimes.
0: Yeah, interesting. And so what were some of your findings of your <clears throat> PhD and did it um, did it turn out the way you thought it would uh, those seven, eight years ago?
1: In some respects, yes. In a lot of respects, no. Um, I think when you do a PhD, you, as my supervisors told me, um, definitely in the last few years, they kept saying, you know, this is actually uh, you're an apprentice and you're learning your way through this process. That's what happens in a PhD. So I don't think there's any way it can turn out exactly the way you intend, because you really don't understand what it means to to graduate through the levels of a PhD, which is effectively what happens. Mm. But as regards to the, the findings, no, there were certainly things that that I didn't think I would be discussing or considering. Um there were also some little side issues as well that, that I, I, didn't, I, never, I never saw coming from the beginning, you know, things about team teaching, the dynamics of team teaching when, you know, two teachers teach together in a pair, um, you know, does it, does it affect uh, the way that they approach it? Do they approach it as a team and what does that actually mean? Does one take on one role and one take on another? Is that what typically happens with the team teaching? You know, I think some of the ideas to what team teaching is, is different to what we think it is. Yeah, you know?
0: yeah, really interesting. I mean, you throw in a global pandemic as well. That's got to sort of put a spanner in the works. And, and, and I feel like um, I know the conversations that, that I'm having at school is the, the sort of effective use of technology now and that ability to... Um, Those issues around accessibility and um, uh, uh, differentiation using technology are all of a sudden at the forefront of discussions that we're having. And so I kind of think in many ways that the COVID-19 pandemic has um, kind of catalyzed a lot of these discussions around technology. Do you you feel the same? I mean, you obviously couldn't have foreseen such an event happening eight years ago. Yeah. No, I I know what you mean about those
1: discussions, but I think in a way what surprises me is we've actually seemed to have gone back very much to the way we were before in the way mm. we we're in schools. We yeah. I would say in a lot of ways we we've largely gone back to how it was before. We, so we had all these changes when we taught online, but how many schools can say that it they it has significantly impacted the way that they actually approach teaching mm. and learning? I'm not sure that it's made a great difference. Yeah, as regards considerations of access to technology, as regards that understanding that people have to have a certain skill levels and be able to use certain tools and be in certain competencies. But really, when it comes to pedagogical approaches, has it made any difference at all? I'm not sure it has. I'm, obviously, there's going to be some cases that it has, but generally, across the board, yeah, I get the feeling that we're back to where we were,
0: largely. Interesting. And um, that was another question I was going to ask, uh, and you've kind of answered it. Um, so do you think, I mean, look, we are all creatures of habit. Do you think education systems are, are the same? Do you think we will spring back to uh, previously held notions of, uh, of schooling, or are you confident that we can learn uh, from some of these lessons? I think we have to change. I think there's not at all, you know, the current thing
1: I've been, uh, that's been concerning me and I've been um, involved in discussions and looking at data that's out there is if we look at the workplace as being a flexible environment, which it is for most people now, especially if you're looking at office workers, those kinds of environments. I mean, being here in Melbourne, the city is not the same as it was pre pandemic. Mm. You know, this is Monday morning in the city and it's not as busy as it should be because. The majority of people don't come into the office to work. Yeah. So, if that's the case, um, is there a you know is there a demand there for more flexible schooling, especially yeah. when we look at senior years? Yeah. And, and if we look at universities, recently I was uh, talking to uh, an academic at Adelaide, Adelaide University, and she was saying, "I said uh, uh, the students come back for lectures after the pandemic," and she said, "No," and she said, "The worrying thing is." They don't come for tukes either anymore. So if we start to look at that as a dynamic and we say we're preparing our students for life after school, especially in their senior years, if we're preparing them for university or for a working life which is far more flexible and doesn't involve that 100% attendance or involves more flexible working hours, if we're not providing that in schools, are we preparing them? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Hmm.
0: Yeah, really, really interesting. And, uh, and, and this may seem like a bit of an aside, but I remember many years ago having a conversation with the librarian in the school that I worked um, at, and we are talking about if we should, um, if we should throw out the Encyclopaedia Britannicas. Uh, yeah. And so I remember those; like they used to be a, a source of pride on my uh, granddad's wall back in England. Um, if you had a whole set, you were, you know, you'd made it, you know. And they were working class families, and were so proud of having this. Set of knowledge, and then sort of go forward to 20 years. I was having a conversation, like I said, with a librarian. Do we need to throw them out? And it raised a really interesting question, which I think has some implications for schooling. Is um, firstly, like, what was in that case, what was the role or what is the role of libraries now in terms of uh, being these knowledge centers and holders of understanding? And also to sort of um, broaden that further, like, what is, and I'd love your thoughts on this, like, what is the purpose now of schools why are they there like why do we need them and um how do we even begin to have those conversations around um around these new concepts now it's a really it's a they're really difficult um are teachers holders of knowledge are they more facilitators uh yeah what, what what are your thoughts on that
1: well I think I think the point is is as you're raising there is they are very difficult and complex conversations these and they're not going to be answered by me and you on a podcast or exactly. somebody and somebody in a keynote speech either. And I think that's the problem sometimes. People go, Oh, this person said this in a keynote speech, we all have to hang on the those coattails. No, they are very complex and contextual conversations because yeah. one school is not going to be the same as another. Exactly a university is not the same as a school. So the important thing is the, the conversations have to happen. And to me, that there is what's not happening enough. Now, it is happening in some places, and there are some schools attempting to address all sorts of situations. But I would, I would have expected, I think I would have expected more coming out of the pandemic because we had disruption. We adjusted in some ways, some amazing ways. You saw young people adjust to things, and some people struggled. We saw some people flourish during this time, being able to work flexibly. We saw other people struggle with lack of socialization. The access to technology was an issue for some people and not from others. So it really depends on where you're talking about, who you're talking about, what's the belief in the system going forward? What type of school is it? What type of learning institute is it? um, How is it gonna meet the needs of the young people? And that discussion has to happen at all levels and it has to involve young people. Yeah. So the, the important thing is to have the discussions and keep having the discussions and pilot things and work things out. Try things. Let's try things and see if it can work better. Is it going to work better for people to have, I don't know, one day off a week or have different opportunities to build their own timetable within the school? Is that going to work? You know, perhaps it, that can't work. I don't know. Is it should a school to be open till nine o'clock at night? Because that's what people want. I don't, you know what? Yeah. What is what is the right model? It depends.
0: But what a fascinating time to be around, I think, because we are sort of, yeah. like, I know the, the, the pandemic has been uh, so disruptive and so tragic for so many people, but it's also caused us to ask some fundamental questions. Like, I, I remember thinking my job would never, ever, ever go online. And a week later, I'm teaching <laughs> kids online. And while that didn't, why that didn't stay, it does raise some really interesting and foundational questions about the role of schools, the role of teachers, how we differentiate um, a curriculum using technology, issues of access. Like I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is amazing because I get to ask these questions that I never would have been able to ask before. And, and I love that there's a few people that are thrown into turmoil with that uh, because mm. it's causing them to, to answer some of those things that they were thought, thought were unquestionable. Um, Nick, I did just want to ask. I mean, you you mentioned uh when we were corresponding before that um one of your interests is thinking about schools as more, as more circular economies. Yeah. I was just wondering what that means and why is that a particular focus for you?
1: I think it always oh, it's always confused me in schools as to why schools spend a fortune on certain things when they don't get their students to. And but we're back to this empowerment of students. You know, mm. let's think of PD for the start off. I've just shown through my research that you can train some students to become experts with technology. You can put them in the role of teaching their peers and teaching primary school students in the use of this, these tools, you know, whichever tools you put in front of them. They become specialists in that. Then they get a chance to consider how they teach their kids. In other words, their pedagogical approach. And then you can run PD sessions, which are both the training of software and then pedagogical discussion sessions, which it did with these teachers where they had open discussions about how to approach teaching and learning with the technology. How much would that have cost to go out to a, a company to do that? There's a prime example of a circular economy, but it mm-hmm. doesn't just stop there. It stops. It comes back to the physical things. I often go, hang on, we're teaching kids, um, home economics, cooking, whatever you're going to call it. And then... You're paying for catering, you know? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense to me. Surely you put these people in a situation. And yes, it does happen in school, but does it happen enough? You know, do we get the kids to we we go out and buy benches, you know? Can't they be made, surely? In you know, in the in whatever design and technology class can't some of these things, I mean it may not be all things and it may not come up to standard, but at least let's have a go at getting Young people more involved in their own community. I think it comes back to for me, really when I worked, yeah. In, yeah, it comes back to that thing. In I worked in a school in the UK, and at the same time, I'd read about a similar thing in Japan. And in my school in the UK, the year 12s were employed as the cleaners. So after school, they clean the school, they were all paid. But believe you me, if there were young people, the younger kids didn't make a mess in the toilets if the year 12 saw anything about it because the year 12s had to clear that mess up. And, wow. that, and at the same time, I'd read about the, uh, I think it was the Japan World Cup where they, they stayed behind and cleaned up in the stadiums afterwards. And I just thought,
0: yeah, this then, is
1: exactly how it should be.
0: I remember showing my students a, a bit of a documentary about Japanese students cleaning their classrooms at the end of each day. Yeah. And it made me really think about, like, like, that would really build a sense of ownership exactly like it, it would and that that idea of like this is our space I mean one of the most significant things I think I have done in my classroom is actually getting my kids not every term uh, but quite often to design their own learning space because I want them to walk in and go this is my space this is how I need to function to learn and that sense of empowerment I mean we don't have trashed classrooms I mean stuff gets broken you know there's 30 kids I get that but I do think like, like seeing students take ownership for that space is so important. And that that interesting thing that you said about toilets are always a contentious issue in schools. They're always getting trash. There's always toilet paper thrown on the walls. But if you know that, if you're going to be cleaning that up, you would just take yep. care of it, you know? And I think exactly. that's a really, a, a really interesting idea in that, that, that whole concept of circular economies. I'd never thought about it until yeah we'd corresponded but it's really really interesting and the implications there are huge aren't they
1: and there's also another arm to this as well um I I pose the question constantly of how many things go on in schools that are hidden from students that Mm. in themselves become a learning experience yeah you're building a new website for your school how many times does that not involve the students? I'm not saying they have to have a say in the way it looks, but why are they not sitting in the process to understand how a website is built, how it hmm. involves a whole design thinking process, how it involves communication, which parties are involved. Why did things end up being left out? Why did things end up being um, on the website? What, what are the regulations? What structures are we working? How many meetings does this involve? That there is an eye opener in itself. And just think of that on a different level from a sign that's put out, out the front from decisions to build a building like it is, you know, all those sort of things. How many of those are learning experiences for young people?
0: And there's also no way, I mean, sort of taking this further, there's no reason why we can't credential students and have some sort of a micro certification yeah. around web design or construction. Or, yeah. And I think really aligning um these skills would say it doesn't have to be a formal qualification but it does at least make it a lot more a lot more practical I mean I was having a, a conversation with a, a a hero of mine who was actually the first guest on the podcast about 18 months ago a guy called Richard Gerver um, from mm-hmm. the UK and he was talking about how he um, they used to create markets within their schools where students design products where they sell them mm-hmm. where they promote them where they he created a little self-sustaining city in his school and that's such yeah. a a simple but such a profound way of taking our learning and then putting a practical application to it and I think that is so important I, mean, I think um yeah there's so much there's so much in that and that's a podcast episode for a, a whole a <laughs> day how we actually we're actually credential students but I know in New South Wales we have the TAFE system, where students in high school can go and do elect- uh, electives over in TAFE, but why can't we credential and why can't we we build those capacities within schools? Because um, we have the resources there; we're just outsourcing it to private companies.
1: <laughs> and it comes back to that word of authenticity, doesn't it? Exactly.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, Nick, there's so many so many questions I have. I mean, your um, Research sounds uh, sounds really fascinating. I don't know if you're willing to share your uh, PhD with me, but I'd love to give it a read. Sure. Um, yeah. I, I'm sure
1: you wouldn't want to read uh, the, uh, over 100,000 words, but you can read the abstract. I'm sure that'll be enough. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> it, it,
0: it sounds really, really interesting. And, um, I think just in closing, like I said, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you're celebrating today, Um, uh, but um, are you, we talked a little bit about this, but are you optimistic in the direction that schools are headed? Do you think we can? Do you think these discussions will lead to sustained change or do you think it may be a bit messy for a few more years to come?
1: I think it's going to be messy. Yes, I'm optimistic that we're having these discussions and I think more people are having these discussions. I'm just always impatient. You know, I I think to myself, why isn't it happening faster? Why aren't more people having the discussions? And yes, I do understand that there is fear of change. And I do understand that it is more complex than perhaps uh, I'm suggesting. But it comes down to having those discussions. And yeah, so I'm I'm optimistic in terms of the amount of people having the discussions and the different ways these are happening. And I can Mm -hmm. see that people are starting to try things. As I say, it just comes down to impatience for me
0: yeah absolutely well i hope um I'm also really impatient too um, <laughs> I hope that these obviously discussions lead somewhere because it's really important I'm, i I know my my daughter's starting kindergarten next year and so these discussions have always been important to me but have just become that little bit more personal I think um mm. because I wonder about the world that she's going to inherit when uh, she leaves school in 18 years from now um oh. was that 2040. Uh, which is terrifying. Wow. Um, and I think about the the, the different landscape. Um, I was having a conversation with her yesterday. Um, she found my driver's licence and she says, Daddy, can I have one of these? And I said, you can. But, I mean, the reality is, is that she may never have to learn to drive.
1: Yeah, there we go. Um,
0: yeah. And, like, she may never need one. And so that really made me think, like, what is the world that our kids... Um, what is the world going to be like that our kids are coming into? And I think these discussions that you're having and the research that you're doing around technology is, um, is incredibly important. And so I, I commend you for asking those questions. I think it's really, really wonderful. And um, just in closing, Nick, um, what currently has your attention professionally? What what, you, what problems are you are, are you trying to solve? Is there something that you're, you're trying to get answers to?
1: And from a technology perspective, I would say I've got a big interest in the... Uh, at the moment in two areas in immersive technology, VR and AR, but I mean, they're hardly new. I just think that there's a lot more research needs to go into, into the impact that that can have. Um, But uh, I've also got a real fascination at moment with artificial intelligence.
0: Fantastic. Uh,
1: Yeah. If you look at some of the work that a guy called Mike Sharples is doing out of the UK, he's from open university in the UK. He's just published a book recently on it, but, um, the, his book, and um, there's a good video, he, a short video on YouTube where he, he really encapsulates those questions. Now, the focus on AI at the moment is really about, you know, how, how can it improve systems? How can it uh, impact learning in respect of going? Uh, if a kid's journey is through learning and he or she shows that they're not very good at this, then AI can read into this and adjust mm. the learning Sequence or development sequence for them, but he's he's looking at AI in another respect. He's looking at the scariest parts of AI in respect of teaching and learning. So he's focusing right right on the idea of going. Let's admit that AI can write your essay for you and can write your research paper for you. So if that's the case, what positives can we take from that? What can we actually do as regards teachers and what can we do with learners to actually use the AI as a tool for learning? Wow. And that is just mind-blowing stuff. Because the reality is, and they will there are students in up and down the country, around the world at the moment, who are submitting AI pieces of work and they're passing them off as their own. So it's happening now. If you train the AI correctly, I've got it, I've got it myself. I'm doing it myself. I know it works. I put my own PhD question into there before it had been published and it published an abstract that encapsulated my work now that's quite scary <laughs> you know unique piece of work it works so if this is happening right now you know the whole idea of plagiarism goes out the window because these are all unique p- pieces of work so that's the scary yeah. side but how do we encapsulate yeah. this how do we use this and yeah. he, he's come up with some really interesting ideas as to how we use it and i think this is just the beginning. So if we're going to start admitting that this exists, and we're going to start thinking that there's no way we can hide this, then let's you know let's see what we can actually do with it.
0: Fantastic, yeah. super interesting. And um, Nick, just imagine uh, we're sitting down having a coffee, uh, and I'm considering I'm just about to step into my first classroom. What advice? Uh, what advice would you give me?
1: Just remember, it's a stage go on there and put on the best act
0: you can. Yeah. It's you. your classroom. Close the door. You're on the stage. Fantastic. That's great advice. And final question, uh, Nick, where can people find out more about you and follow some of the work that you're doing?
1: So I am at larger armor at Twitter. That's L A R G E R A M A. If you can understand my accent.
0: Yeah, I'll, um, you also I'll put a find link me, to that. Don't worry. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> you also find me on LinkedIn as well. That's two spaces. Two spaces I really play in. Um, yeah, um, I'll provide you with a link to my PhD if you want to suffer that reading. And um, yeah, apart from that, you'll find me. Um, you'll find me at home watching most uh, League United games, Not every League United game. But that will be just sat on my own couch.
0: <laughs> I know my uh, my local team, Nottingham Forest, is in the Premier League this year. Uh, yes. so it's been it's been a long time but they're back I think <laughs> they're still bottom of the table but they're back at least yeah look uh, Nick a huge um a huge uh, pleasure speaking to you privilege um and uh thank you for the really important work that you're doing uh in this uh really exciting space and uh congratulations again uh on the phd thank you